Just a quick word of warning before we get going that the following podcast will almost certainly contain spoilers and may also contain strong language and conversations of an adult nature. Hello and welcome to Strong Language and Violent Scenes, the podcast giving a second chance to films that might not deserve them. I'm Mitch Bain, I'm a lapsed horror writer and an occasional doer of musical things. And I'm Andy Stewart, apathetic. <laughs> and joining us today, you know him best as a director of such films as Crowhand, Gwilliam, Gwilliam's Tips for Turning Tricks into Treats, BFF Girls, The Devil's Asshole and many more. It's Brian Lonano. Brian, hi. Hello, how are you guys? Very well, very well. Um, thanks so much for taking the time to do this. And also, I think this might be a first for us as well. Somebody who was sitting down to record at 7 o'clock in the morning their time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's correct. What better way to start a day than with a cup of coffee and talking to two Scottish guys about a start on? <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. And uh, maybe even the first time, Mitch, we've had someone recording from outside their house. I would say that is also probably true. Yeah, yeah. It is a week of firsts. Also, Brian, I would say that, uh, as you mentioned there, your film choice, Zardoz, I would say it also has broken my record for the amount of question marks I wrote in a set of notes. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> it'll, it'll do that for you, for sure. <laughs> so, um, what drew you to Zardoz for uh, your selection for this show? Oh, <clears throat> Zardoz has been a film that my brain has been trying to figure out, I think, for the past eight, nine years. My friend Travis introduced it to me in 2012. He helped me move from New York to Atlanta. And uh, when we got to Atlanta, there's a great video store here called Videodrome, which wasn't too far from the apartment that we had. And uh, just, I, I'm not even sure how it came up. He just asked if we ever saw Zardoz. My, my wife, Tori, and I, you know, we said no, we hadn't seen it. And uh, that was the beginning of a wonderful, frustrating relationship with Zardoz. I think to... to sort of sum it up and hopefully intrigue people, I feel Zardoz has one of the best opening scenes and one of the worst closing scenes. <laughs> Andy, what's your background with this one? I didn't really see Zardoz that long ago either. In fact, I'd say that I first saw Zardoz run about the same time that Brian did. And it was, again, it was a very similar kind of story. Uh, I think it was somebody that I was either working on a film with or someone who I was kind of talking to through when I was writing for, when I had the website and was writing for magazines and stuff, but someone someone definitely mentioned Zardoz to me and that it was this mad jumble. I had obviously seen the image of Sean Connery in the red nappy, but I hadn't really made the connection that it was the same film. I, I, I kind of hunted it down like after that conversation. Uh, by the way, if anyone out there is the person that suggested I watch Zardoz, then please get in touch because I don't exactly remember who it was. Um, and uh, yeah, it's just that the maddest jumble of nonsense maybe ever uh, and certainly coming kind of off the back for John Berman anyway certainly coming off the back of Deliverance and right before The Exorcist 2 it's such a mad thing to exist I think that's a fair assessment um, like, like also kind of Sean Connery kind of post-Bond as well it's a really bizarre combination of elements you know I had no idea about Sean Connery and the red diaper <laughs> for uh, I had no idea that correlated with this film, and then I you know watched the film, but I was so entranced by the giant floating head at the beginning. Zardoz had shades of 
Planet of the Apes and Logan's Run, even though Logan's Run came out a couple of years after Zardoz did, and, and Planet of the Apes was like six years before mm. uh, Zardoz. So there was this similarity in the primitive future after some kind of apocalypse. So that kind of like intrigued me about about the film. And I guess all science fiction seemed to have that kind of vibe. It was more about the concepts and months about the fantastical elements of space stations, spaceships, and things like that. But, but again, going back to the idea of this giant stone head coming from out of the sky and these like guys with guns on horses, like worshiping the giant head that tells them that the penis is evil. And then it barfs up guns. Like it's just such a fantastic way to start your movie. You know, he said, <laughs> He sets it up right there, and then I just feel like, unfortunately, like I feel like the film failed to uh, keep that momentum going. Um, but that being said, I still love it, and mm-hmm. it's still full of silly, silly things that uh, will certainly pull a person out of watching the movie. I watched it twice before this recording. Nice. <laughs> I watched it with two commentaries, because I had watched it at least once a year um, before... Uh, well, no, before anything. I just watch it once a year just because. Um, but uh, in preparation for this podcast, I watched it with the John Borman commentary and with commentary by, by three fellas. It's on the Twilight Time release of this disc. Right. But I also may be a person who has who owns two copies of this film. Because oh, uh, <laughs> I, I, I may be the one person in the world who has two copies of this film. I have the Twilight Time release. I forget if that's a region A only or if it's regionless, but I also have the Arrow release of Zardoz that had other features that mm. the Twilight Time release does not. Yeah, I, that, it was the Arrow release that I watched in preparation for this. Now, Mitch, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that you just saw Zardoz for the very first time. Uh, yes, that is correct. I uh, I saw Zardoz for the first time this morning. It's one of those ones that um, has come up in conversation a couple of times over the few years that we've been doing this show. Um, that people have said that they would like us to do an episode on, but um, it's never kind of it's never kind of come to fruition until now. I kind of uh, stayed deliberately ignorant to it until I sat down to watch it. I kind of shut myself out of as much of as much kind of knowledge as possible to kind of just uh, look at it with fresh eyes, which was a mixed blessing at best, <laughs> I would say. I'm I'm gonna need some help uh, with some of the stuff that happens, particularly in the kind of third act. Um, but yeah, no, my uh, my first viewing of this concluded just r- pretty much right before we came on to do this. So yeah, we'll get to my impressions on it as we go on. But Brian, we are gonna ask you to do something right now uh, before we get into the kind of meat of the conversation uh, that we get everyone who comes on to do. So for the benefit of anyone that is listening that hasn't seen Zardos, who I. Th- think might be in for a rough ride well andy's going to put 30 seconds on the clock i'm going to count you in and we're going to ask you to give us your best 30 second synopsis of zardoz uh, how do you feel about that okay let's try it it's that, early but let's try it that's it that's, <laughs> just to say uh, brian i'm not going to be too disappointed if you don't do that well with this because <laughs> this is an extremely difficult ask of anyone to summarize yeah. zardoz in 30 seconds this feels very much like a second cup of coffee task <laughs> oh yeah absolutely absolutely um but I'll, I'll give it a i'll give it a shot i'll give it okay. the old college try okay three two one go the zardoz is set in the year 2293 i believe and it's after some kind of a nuclear war has eradicated most technology and uh, people have evolved into five types of people there's the eternals who are immortal and are, ap- and are very, like, indifferent with living, there's the exterminators, uh, which is what Sean Connery is. He is Zed, an exterminator, who has been, uh, it was part of this plan 
to bring Time. about the end. Damn it. No. Oh, my God. <laughs> Too much world building, I Too guess. Too much scene setting. I should have started with Zed being the uh, exterminator. And that's the thing about Zardoz is, like, there, he's trying to pack so much into this movie. I feel like Zardoz would benefit from a Justice League four-hour running time, but I really don't know who would watch that except possibly me. <laughs> I'd, um, I would give, I'd give it a go, for sure. Uh, I would divide it over three evenings. <laughs> um, I mean, before we even kind of get to the meat of the story, this is packing a lot in, because um, we meet Arthur Frayn here, who explains that he is also Zardoz. Um, he says that he hopes to die shortly, but cannot, because of eternal life and how much of a nuisance that is, basically. Also has a drawn-on moustache and beard, which annoys me constantly throughout this film. Oh, yeah. <laughs> He's the only one who has that, too. I don't, I don't quite get it why <laughs> that is. Such a strange choice, yeah. Um, He also says that the events of the story haven't happened yet, but they might. And then also says to not end up like him. I was extremely puzzled by this, but also was not sure what he was warning me against. Ironically, the studio asked Borman to shoot that to make things less confusing for the viewer. And I think it had had the adverse effect. It, It set me on a confusing path before this had really even started, you know? Yeah, this isn't even as confusing as it's going to get, so if you thought that this was going to offer some kind of clarity, Mitch, then you were were wrong. I really like, my favourite bit about the start is the way he kind of bounces around hypnotically, like one of those, uh, you know what DVD players used to have that weird screensaver? Yeah, Yeah, the DVD screensaver, yes, Arthur Frayn has definitely uh, missed an opportunity to be a DVD screensaver for a job. I don't know how to code that into my old DVD players, but I think I would quite like that. Just constantly giving this speech. Yeah. But yeah, as you said, Ryan, correctly, this is set in the year 2293. Yeah, we open on a battlefield, and what I will say is, basically any time that you see Brutals or Exterminators in kind of these large-scale battle sequences, or sequences of kind of mass murder and stuff like that, they all look really good, I think. Yeah, that's mm. one thing about the film, is that it's beautifully shot. The DP was Jeffrey Unsworth, and I think he did a fantastic job with the cinematography of the film. The one takeaway is the movie looks beautiful. I'll tell you what else looks beautiful. That giant stone head. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's awesome. I, I think they built, like, a couple of versions. Like, there was a six-foot version. But they also built, like, a 32-foot-high version no. of that head. Yeah. Because, <laughs> like, that's how they were able to, like, throw out all those guns and bullets, like, from his mouth. Because those yeah. aren't miniatures. Those look real, like, yeah, life-size. So is the statue Zardoz or a mouthpiece for Zardoz? It's essentially a mouthpiece for Zardoz. That's the godlike figure of that the character of Arthur Frayn hides behind. Like, yeah, okay. It's the same way that later on when they, they talk about the Wizard of Oz, it's essentially the exact same thing that the wizard does. Okay, okay. This was this was kind of my understanding. This is the first of what I imagine will be many questions. That's fine. So we do understand. I think that, like, very much the message here seems to be prioritising death over life. Uh, the gun is good, the penis is evil. Sure. <laughs> I remember the first time I watched that, though, I didn't expect mention of the penis quite so early. <laughs> Yes, it caught me off guard too, but I was like, yeah, all right, this is the kind of movie it's going to be, I guess. But I knew John Borman didn't shy away from being a little bit of a confrontational filmmaker. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, he's a famous scene in Deliverance, and of course, Exorcist 2, uh, you know, he's 
kind of an abrasive filmmaker, but that's what intrigues me so much about him. But yeah, right away, the penis is evil. Boom. Yeah. yeah. Uh, in, in this case, um, derided for its life-giving qualities. Yeah, yeah. And uh, a different kind of gun to the other guns that we're seeing. Yeah. Love um, gun. <laughs> but yeah, um, the statue, as you said, Brian, starts spewing guns and bullets at this point. Again, pretty cool visual. Absolutely. That's why I attribute to it being like one of the great openings of a film. I almost wish the film didn't start with the Arthur Frayne bloating head intro yeah. and just start on this like smoky field and this giant headland and start speaking in this booming voice and then vomits up guns. I mean, you can't get more excited about a film than being thrown in and just being like, what is this? Like, what world is this? You know, and then, you know, start going into it. So it's just a great opening. And yeah. uh, I love the fact that it was a huge head. And of course, like the adaptation of the Beethoven Seventh Symphony mm -hmm. Second Movement for the opening credits where the head is like floating towards the camera like that's a great melding of of image and sound you know it's just it was it was great it really got me excited about the movie starting yeah it's it's total sensory overload but like i think that you made a good point there brian as well that i think that like um the arthur frame bed at the start for as entertaining as it is it doesn't need to be there and if anything it does kind of muddy the waters a little bit more and it kind of probably and it would be bad if it just dropped you straight into this without necessarily offering any immediate explanations because you don't learn anything in the Arthur Frame prologue that isn't explained perfectly fine later on. Yeah, you see Arthur plenty of times throughout the film and he's essentially saying this exact same stuff, but they've just boiled it down to one monologue. I don't know, I, I feel like I see too much Arthur Frame at the beginning between the floating head intro and then like he's in the head yeah. and then Zed comes out of the grain and shoots him. Uh, so it's like, oh, this guy was at the beginning and now he's shot and now he's flying away, even though he's like... <laughs> Falling, it looks like he's just decided to fly out of the mouth after he gets shot in the arm. I was absolutely baffled by this. So, like, um, <laughs> so yeah, because so the next thing we see is Sean Connery as Zed, which, like you say, I mean, like, I had not made the connection that that was this film when that happened. I was like, oh, it's the film from the meme. Yeah, yeah, it's the film from the meme. Uh, yeah, he, had, if you don't know what we're talking about here, Sean Connery looks preposterous in this film. He has a long ponytail, he has a wild handlebar mustache, and is wearing kind of red bandoliers, thigh-high boots, and a kind of red nappy diaper for our transatlantic listeners. I mean, Sean Connery, he, he's just, he's, he's never more or less than Sean Connery, and that's exactly what he's doing here. Well, by preposterous, do you mean great? <laughs> <laughs> you pronounce that word differently over there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think it was a little lost in translation. What you meant? You meant he looked great, right? I don't think I did mean he looked great. I think I meant that... It's a very, it's a startling image. You know, it is. And uh, it's also interesting that he breaks the fourth wall right at the beginning. And it's almost like a wink and a nod to like James Bond, as the second commentary had mentioned, like, oh, it's very much like James Bond, you know, breaking the fourth wall and shooting the camera. And I always wondered about the breaking of the fourth wall uh, in, in movies. And I wonder if it's a sign that a film is going to be incredibly pretentious or not because it's definitely happened in a few films that have gotten quite pretentious. The one that comes to mind is The Revenant, even though that's at the very end of the movie, where yeah. DiCaprio just kind of like breaks the fourth wall and looks at us. I was like, what is, what is that all about? <laughs> I <was> like, <laughs> like, I didn't eat the liver, you did. <laughs> <laughs> uh, also, I love the, the naked people in the massive condoms, like in the naked gun on the inside of the Zardo's head. Oh, 
oh yeah, they're like you went to a convention and picked up some loose Star Wars figures in plastic bags. <laughs> Like, it's like that episode of The Simpsons where comic book guy keeps people in big giant oh, yeah. bags. The collector, yeah. Yeah, yeah. near mint condition. <laughs> um, yeah, there's all kind. There's like lots of images like that where it's not explained through exposition and you have to really like listen to what they're saying to sort of figure out like why are there naked people wrapped in plastic? Why is there like a greenhouse with like people outside of it naked? Yeah. And apparently that's like the whole thing that I didn't really know about until I watched it again recently was that they're being, their Eternals being regenerated. Yeah. Oh, okay. Because I guess as an Eternal, you can die, but you can regenerate. So that's how and why, spoiler alert, I guess Arthur Frame comes back later. Sure. Yeah. Okay. You know, because I guess he did die after he flew, fell out of Zardoz's mouth. But yeah, he comes back and it's because he's regenerated. Yeah, because Friend also says at one point that he's died hundreds of times. Yes, exactly. Some by suicide, but yeah, he keeps coming back. So, mm. uh, Friend is an interesting character. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. definitely. Um, um, I love that this is anyone's vision of the 23rd century. Like, I mean, it's really just like a couple of biodomes outside relatively well-kept farms in Ireland. Yeah, yeah. I think that was like their nice economical way of like having it be the future. You know, and I think that was a lot of the case with a lot of, like, high-concept, low-budget science fiction yeah. um, back then. It's like, you know, it's if you look at Star Trek, like the original Star Trek show, you're like, oh, let's time travel to ancient Rome because Paramount has some Roman set pieces that are not being used right now. So let's <laughs> build a movie. Let's do a show about Rome. And what I love is, uh, in a way, this is like the ultimate backyard movie because this was all shot where John Borman lives, yeah. like right outside his house. So I love the fact that like he just made this ridiculous science fiction movie in his backyard. It kind of reminds me of when I used to make giant head movies in my backyard growing up in uh, <laughs> Staten Island. <laughs> Hard to believe you managed to get a thirty-two foot head that spews like like slime out its mouth. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Big paper mache head just hanging out in my uh, backyard for years. But yeah, I love that. I love that he made this in his backyard, basically. And uh, I also love that it, you know, was so low budget. There's a quote I pulled from the commentary. He said, a low budget obliges you to be creative. And I mm. totally see that in this film. Like he's really being creative with the concepts of science fiction, you know. Yeah. elements and the futuristic elements too like the ring that projects you know lots of projections in this film that are done with what he called ghost glass and Ooh. stuff like that so it's really really cool stuff you know but then you have like a couple of goofy looking matte paintings but you have this great model of the head and then those bubbles that are above the mansion houses and stuff. I don't know. It just looks great. I agree. Like, I think that, like, there's no denying that there's a lot of creativity flying around. I think that it possibly stuffs too much mythology in there. For sure. I think so, yeah. Too many ideas. It could have benefited from either paring down some of the ideas or exploring it in a... Well, I think he did create a novelization. He may have written the script like a book and then adapted it into a screenplay. So it's very possible that the novelization has a lot more information that is explained more clearly. 
Yeah, I, I I think that like um and we'll and we'll get to kind of the parts where I think I kind of feel like it's a little bit overstuffed with this kind of thing. But I think that like uh it might have benefited from I think that you're right. I think that possibly the elimination of some stuff and the refinement of some others. Agreed. But I mean like but it is it is fun to just stand at the foot of this enormous mountain of expository mythology and try to pick it apart. Like I mean like that's interesting. Yeah, I, at one point I wrote in his commentary, "Low budget obliges you to be creative." But then I wrote down and Zed walks through with Spencer's gifts and like <laughs> there's scenes like I think in Arthur Frame's room where he has like glittery stuff like hanging beads but they're basically streamers like yeah, in his yeah. room and there's just a bunch of skulls and stuff <laughs> like I questioned some of the production design of the film but yeah so it's it's unfortunate where like there's some really interesting things in there but then they get muddled by low budget silliness and i mean like brian it's normally my job on this podcast to try and kind of like keep the conversation linear plot wise i am definitely going to need more than average assistance with that with this i think for that very reason but yeah zed uh sean connery kind of lands in a vortex here as you mentioned and um again he kind of goes into this house and we hear this report that sounds like an old-time radio report about surpluses in vortex and what they need, like soap and leather and stuff like that. And this film is so bold with the amount of really, really strange stuff it just kind of puts up front with no explanation and just kind of like will deconstruct at its own leisure later. Yeah, you know, it's a lot like something like Mad Max Fury Road or Star Wars, the first Star Wars, where it drops you into these worlds and you sort of have to play catch up. But unfortunately, you can pick up Mad Max and Star Wars a lot easier than what this movie <laughs> is doing. It definitely requires extra brain power to like follow what people are doing. Um, but yeah, so he's stowed on the sh- on the head and has brought has been brought to this place, uh, this vortex where these Eternals live, and he comes across May. The actress's name escapes me, but apparently she, like, discovers him because exterminators are not allowed in this vortex. They're allowed outside the Outlands, where they go and exterminate what they call brutals, which I guess are just normal homeless people. That's certainly what it seems to to be. They they look just a lot like kind of peasants, like serfs. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. They look like serfs. And And Sean Connery and his other exterminators are basically tasked with shooting and killing these people so they don't breed yeah. and like continue to procreate and, and populate the, the country yeah because you hear about the brutals before you see them and when they talk about them i was like oh presumably you know like because obviously i was kind of understanding that there was like this element of like dystopia going on and i was like oh presumably these are just kind of like you know kind of like feral people or something like that and then it, but then yeah when you see them later on i was like are these just poor people <laughs> yeah, I, I'm pretty sure they're just poor people, gypsies or something, you know, I don't know. But uh, yeah, they, I would have expected something like Morlocks from the Time Machine, yeah. but they're not. They're just normal people who don't seem to be uh, harming anyone. <laughs> <laughs> We kind of move through these kind of various, I guess you could kind of call them tribes, and we spend a lot of time with the Eternals here, who are just kind of like these pompous, stuck-up creatures of science, really. And they wear, like, most of them are wearing, like, regular clothes, they're relatively well-covered, but some of the guys are just, like, they're they're fully clothed except for their nipples. They dress very comfortably. I believe everyone was wearing velvet, but, like, it's (laughs) like they're dressed in velvet washcloths, as yeah, opposed yeah. to like shirts. It's like there's one guy and his shirt just 
doesn't cover his nipples at all. And it's like, you can't even, can't like just make it a little more so, so that way your nipples would be covered. I don't know. The I'd man... be cold if I if I dressed like that. I would be cold. For sure, <laughs> for sure. I mean, the man's nipple is pointless. Like, n- no one wants to <laughs> display the male nipple. It's, it's as sexy as an elbow. <laughs> but I... Uh, <laughs> Oh, there's a lot of nudity. I will say that as well. There's like tons of nudity in this film, but it's not sexualized nudity. It's casual nudity. And yeah. like some people are just walking around topless. Like nobody's bottomless, but like a lot of topless walking around, both men and women, I guess, you know, it just, yeah. it seems like sort of a hippie commune yeah. that the Eternals <laughs> live in. Does. No one's going to walk around bottomless, but wearing a top. Like that's, that's preposterous. Right. The only person that ever does that is Donald Duck. <laughs> and he doesn't really ride horses that much. That's another like detriment of being bottomless. Is that oh, you're, Christ, you're riding yeah. around horses a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's good. It's good. So Zed is like brought in by May, who I guess is a scientist and wants to study how did this like exterminator. They keep saying penetrate the vortex. There's lots of words that are used regularly, and I'm I'm sure it's intentional because John Borman is not an idiot. So like he's a smart guy. So he's like brought in to be studied and. I guess May has a lover, Consuela, who's played by Charlotte Rampling, who does not want the uh, Zed, the exterminator, brought into their world because she fears that he will undo everything, the uh, fabric of their existence. Like she's very fearful of him. Yeah, she's got, she's got no real interest in the kind of potential kind of research benefits of having somebody like this around her and like that. She's very much just kind of like, yeah, you're right. It's like this will upset the ecosystem irreversibly. Let's get him out of here. She's absolutely right, and because that's exactly what happens. Yeah, exactly. And apparently that was by design, like as is mentioned later, is that he was meant to be brought here. But obviously they don't know that uh, it was someone else's plan to do that. But May is intrigued by him because he doesn't seem to be like an, a normal exterminator. Yeah. She refers to him as a mutant. And it's because he is more educated than the uh, typical exterminator. They still keep him caged up next to monkeys while deer roam free. I know, and that's what reminds me of Planet of the Apes, is like, they kept him, like, in a cage, like Charlton Heston in the the original Planet of the Apes. But yeah, Charlotte Rampling and even friends see him as, like, an animal, basically. But friends starts to see that he's more than that. But Consuela, I guess, I guess Consuela acknowledges it, but doesn't want to admit that he's more than an animal to her. And yeah, you're right. I mean, like, even even the people who kind of, like, and we'll get get to kind of the character of friend in a minute, because obviously it's, like, pretty interesting and pretty pivotal. But, like, even the people here who regard Zed with any amount of compassion still, I think, refer to him as it. Yeah. Yeah, they find him intriguing. I think also they are intrigued by his masculinity too because obviously there's some women who come and touch his chest and touch his arms and stuff like that like when they initially bring him in to determine whether or not he should be like killed or studied uh and i guess this society goes through a lot of like voting on things yeah because there's always like crimes that are being committed by like eternals and their punishment is to be aged conceptually i really like this yeah just to speak to that very briefly yeah like like, you're right it's like it seems like it's an intensely democratic place and that like almost everything is conducted by vote but yeah this whole notion of people having eternal life but the criminal sentencing being aging i thought was really interesting and it's kind of it's actually like it's one of the things that i think explored the best and kind of like the most convincingly as well 
Yeah, because we do kind of see the aftermath of a lot of these kind of sentences, I suppose, because friend takes Zed out kind of on the road with him. They go to, well, he's just essentially throwing loaves of bread at people. But that seems to be what the, the mission is. We're going to go and deliver these loaves of bread. And uh, we, we meet the renegades who are presumably Eternals who have been aged to the point of eternal senility, which is horrible. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, it's just a bunch of old people and for some reason they're all wearing tuxedos and they're all hanging out in like an old ballroom. Yeah, it's very confusing as to why they're aesthetically dressed that way. Like where did they find tuxedos with tails and like 1920s like gowns and things like that. So yeah. mm. that's sure. And the apathetic, exactly. The yeah. apathetic who are just I've said it myself. I, I mean they were they were just like me when I was like seventeen. <laughs> Um, yeah, and, and these are these are like people who are immortal, like Eternals, but are basically like have complete apathy and are just kind of like aimless and like cat in, in a catatonic state, basically. And there's definitely like uncomfortable moments where like that is intrigued by one and tries to like have his way with her, but he's not interested because she's completely like you know like a loose noodle, like <laughs> and, and is not is dead weight, you know, and so, and I don't mean to laugh at it, but the way he hurls oh. that woman into the mat of hay, is it's just so like, funny. I, it is funny. you can't believe that that's a real person that he just flung into the hay. Laugh at um, it, Brian, laugh freely, because it's very funny. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I, again, I think that this is cool, though. Again, like, like the fact that when you see the kind of the consequences of eternal life in this place, resulting in these breakaway factions that are all horrendous for loads of different, totally bummer, nihilistic reasons. <laughs> hey, Mitch, it must have made you feel good, though, to see someone so hairy in a film. You, it must have felt like you were at home with a brother. Yeah, it was like an arm reaching from the screen to cradle me. Yeah, yeah the next scene is my favourite scene in the film, where they talk a lot about the penis correction and they show you all the boner diagrams and then you, you see just how much time they're investing in investigating boners yeah apparently uh it's because they've been living for so long that they forgot how to be stimulated that's it yeah yeah and then that is this bringer of boners i guess you know <laughs> they're they're intrigued that he can get a, an erection and uh i guess it's sort of clear you know what one, one thing is kind of muddy in the film is the relationship between Zed and Consuela. Mm -hmm. Because I almost felt like the relationship between Zed and May was like stronger. Like I could ultimately see becoming a romance. Unfortunately, like I've watched Zardoz and I can't quite put together like Zed and Consuela will be an item. I don't know. And I almost feel bad for Consuela. Yeah, they go, they go from being like clear enemies to agreeing around about the hour mark that they're in love and will spend eternity together. Yeah, I, I don't quite buy in the movie, unfortunately, like how that happens. You know, I don't see that change. And unless it's just, it's written in for convenience, it almost feels like. That's, that's one of the... Yeah. Thing. Yeah, it's it's, it's 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 definitely underdeveloped. I unless think it just happens, and you'd expect it to just kind of accept it. Unless it's kind yeah. of decided, like the fates decree it, because she's the only one who can get him hot. I guess, but I don't know. I, then I would have thought like Charlotte Rampling should have maybe played the May character. Then mm. you know, because I would, I, I could see those two becoming. You know, her being infatuated with her work and then eventually they you know come to embrace and there was sort of a moment like that where they're under the little the little sheet <laughs> which is a ridiculous scene um <laughs> but that's i'm getting ahead i'm getting ahead basically yeah consuela and zed seem to be at odds and it's causing friction between her 
and May, who I guess are lovers, that, that wasn't really explored because I wasn't even sure that people would be loving each other, you know, in this society since everybody's eternal and there's no, it seems sexless. Yeah. And uh, nobody's aroused, you know, so I wasn't sure, like, how or why Consuelo or May would be lovers. Yeah, and I think that that's kind of interesting because you're right. It's like, given how much casual nudity there is and the fact that they seem to be funneling millions of dollars into boner research, you're right. It's like, it is a very desexualized society uh, for all that. Yeah, yeah. And, and obviously, like Zed is bringing sexuality back and it's on the nose at times, you know, where he's sweating and, like, they're tasting his sweat and that he's bringing the apathetics out of, like, their catatonic state. Yeah. <laughs> We're doing I a mean, lot of films, Mitch, with sweat tasting just now. Yeah, uh-huh, I don't care for it. Brian, when you said he was bringing sexuality back there, I'm now just imagining this entire film recut with sexy back by Justin Timberlake playing in the background at these moments. <laughs> I mean, that could, be a, that could be a good YouTube video to put online for the rare fan of both Justin Timberlake and Zardoz. And Zardoz, yeah. yeah for, Not for, for, that for... rare, there's one set here. <laughs> <laughs> well, the intersection on that Venn diagram is Andy. <laughs> Uh, I'm gonna kind of I might move some of this a little bit out of sequence uh, for the benefit of people who haven't watched it just to kind of ground some things in mythology and brevity and brevity I guess yeah because we could be here all day if we tried to get into every nook and cranny of this but May kind of realises the threat of Zed and it's basically because he's the product of this kind of long running almost like eugenics experiment of Frain he's like and and as we touched on earlier he's kind of like smarter and generally like better rounded and more refined than uh, the other exterminators and she basically basically says that she will keep this secret for the moment on the assumption that he won't like disturb anything or kind of be a nuisance of any kind because it is kind of established that he'll like be kept alive for three weeks for research purposes then killed and she basically says that she won't mess around with that arrangement as long as he kind of stays in line right yeah exactly the other thing is like the eternals have like mental powers too they can like hit you mentally uh which always has this like weird like reverse sound like a reverse bell sound or something like that where it goes and like that clearly gets hit with something mentally and then they can also like read your thoughts and that's how May is able to like figure out that Zed was lured into a library by Arthur Frayne and was taught how to read and that's why he's smarter than uh the other one he actually I he might have taught some other exterminators how to read as well because those are the folks that stay with him or are waiting for his signal as he reaches like the outskirts of the vortex and like signals to them to go somewhere or do something like there's a scheme here involving uh, Zed and the exterminators and uh, as it turns out it was by Arthur Frame's design Mm. (laughs) there's so many things that are mentioned that I've like what is that one thing again? Like, there's the vortex, there's the tabernacle, and I think the tabernacle is like a crystal? That's like certainly what it seems. At, at this point in the film, I'm, like, desperately clinging to the things that I think will be important later on. Yeah. And yeah. Why does Friend get... I, I've never really understood why Friend is punished. Why is he made old? I have a question about this as well, yeah. um, So, yeah, there's, like, a dinner. like they, And they seem to have these, like, very, like, kind of vast, sumptuous kind of dinners. But, yeah, Friend, who has been kind of, like... Possibly, I would say, it's fair to say, like, kind of slightly antagonistic towards Consuela so far. But generally, kind of, like, seems like an okay guy and has been all right to Zed. But, yeah, there's... It's almost like this kind of, like, this group kind of psychic thing happens and... He is driven out, and if anyone can help me out with exactly what the beats are of that, I would appreciate it. I thought that he was just being disobedient because they were saying, you know, he had Zed help him 
like prepare the feast and like Charlotte Rampling was saying like we all have to do that ourselves that's how it is and I guess friend was he's interested in Zed maybe because eventually friend reveals that he hates all women because he says that in the script as he's being as he's saying as he's being like mentally uh something's happening where everybody is like waving and wiggling their fingers at him (laughs) (laughs) yeah they make him senile they turn him into a renegade yeah which is weird because they only made half of his face old (laughs) or half of his body old he kind of looks like two-faced from Batman when he popped up looking like the, the kind of half old guy, my wife walked into the room and she went, "Is that Paul McCartney?" And I was like, "I was like, do you know what? No, but it kind of does look like Paul McCartney now." <laughs> Funny story, it, it, yeah. it's half of him. <laughs> you become half a beetle when you go to second level. That's apparently what that means. Yep, yeah, that's what that but is. But that that scene is just a very I wrote down very silly scene oh, yeah, because yeah. you know you got you got people wiggling their fingers and, and rocking back and forth and he's just like whimpering no I will go to second <laughs> level and it's, I don't know what's going on in this scene you know it's, it's just silly it's so like feverish that you almost forget that it doesn't make any sense like like when it's yeah like, when, when it's hot I was like I was like Jesus Christ this is a lot and then before I knew it it kind of come and gone like I like it was only afterwards I was like wait a minute what just happened yeah he has to go and yeah be at that eternal but that eternal no ballroom forever i guess that's sort of where this idea of zed planning to like well you know it's not even zed's plan see i'm getting confused because it's not zed's plan to kill everyone it's someone else's plan to have him kill everyone what zed is looking for is what he says is he wants to know the truth because after he learned how to read he was reading the wizard of oz and he realized that he was being played by Arthur Frame in that ridiculous like zoom in shot of the cover of The Wizard of Oz where his thumb covers W I Z and of and C Zardoz. By ridiculous do you mean great? (laughs) Absolutely, yes. Absolutely great. That's where he discovers that he's been lied to by Arthur Frame, that Zardoz, the giant head that the people worship is like fake and he's a, you know, it's a fraud. So he wants to find out the truth. So him and his fellow exterminators have him stow aboard the Stonehead yeah. so they can he can go to where this thing goes and find out who is in charge of it. I would think right away that Arthur Frayne was a fraud. I don't think I would need to know the Wizard of Oz thing, which, by the way, I think is actually kind of genius. But I mean, the guy doesn't even have a real moustache. <laughs> He's fooling no one. He's dubious at first sight. I would say so. Um, sells shady right out of the gate. Also, that thing on his chin is a vagina, for sure. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm going to I'm gonna try and orientate us very carefully at this point, because I feel like um, we're getting to the point of this where things start to get fairly dense, I think it's fair to say. This is the point, is it? I think that this is the point where I started to feel a little bit unmoored from reality. Okay. Um, so, can somebody summarize the Wizard of Oz thing in a way that will be better than how I do it? Basically, we've already kind of done that. Like, it's it's basically highlighting the fact that Frayne is using the device from the Wizard of Oz to become this godlike character and essentially enslave everyone and control everyone. Right. Sure. Okay. Well, I was I was thinking. I'm wondering if he was the Eternal that was tasked with maintaining the population control of, you know, the outside world, which is why he created the idea of the stone head to tell the exterminators, like, go out and kill, and it'll make Zardoz happy. 
And then I also think that maybe like Arthur Frame wants to destroy the Eternals way of life. So he he finds Zed and like teaches him because he says like this was all part of his scheme to bring Zed here to bring about the end of the Eternals, basically. I don't know. But then, like, the Eternals give him all of their knowledge, and he becomes, like, a Superman, basically. It's got Nietzschean kind of vibes. There's that whole montage where they're projecting all of their knowledge onto him, like literally projecting it with images, like projected images on. And it's beautiful. That whole scene is very beautifully shot. But I guess people have like plans, but really Arthur Frame is the one person who has the the master plan of like ex- having everyone exterminated. But I think Sean Connery is there, you know, for a different, he's not privy to the plan. He just wanted to find out like, why is this giant fake head like a fraud and like what is this all about so he's looking he has different reasons but i guess arthur frame is using him to bring about the end of their people yeah and the trade-off for him it's... being given all this knowledge is that he will swap his seed so that people can start having birth naturally and potentially break this cycle of eternal life so there comes a point towards the end where he's just running around like super loaded up with knowledge like this know-all ball of spunk like just waiting to be drained yeah exactly you know there's a couple of images that i uh, had passed over there was a scene where he's dressed up like a bride oh uh, god but I, I i think it was just because like once they find out like why he's been brought to the vortex i think that makes consuela and some of the other eternals like really frothing mad and yes, they go around yeah. with torches and they want to destroy him. Yeah. Well, it's, like so that actual, way it's a proper they, pitchfork mob on horseback. Yeah, exactly. So that way they don't, uh, he doesn't destroy their way of life. But I think by the time, like, Will actually, like, gets him in a corner and she's got a knife, uh, he's already, like, got a bunch of knowledge. <laughs> and she drops, she just drops the knife. And then she's like, yeah, you're cool. Like, that's the part where I'm like, what? Like, you were so mad before, and, like, now you're just in it. Yeah, her, her, her entire motivation and characterization turns on an absolute dime in this moment. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's disappointing, because I really, I like her character. I like Charlotte Rampling a lot. I think she looks quite beautiful in this movie. Oh, she's, yeah. uh, but she's a, she's a very beautiful woman. But I do love her character, you know, being, uh, I almost wanted her to, to have a little more meat. Like what what she was doing. Yeah, I know I mentioned earlier about uh, Sean Connery looking preposterous in the red nappy, but he looks more preposterous as a bride for sure. Yes, absolutely. Uh, that shot is really cool. Uh, that was all done in one take, and I'm pretty sure that's after the apathetic like licked his sweat. And we're like, oh my god, he's amazing. Yeah, not so <laughs> apathetic these... anymore. Yeah, exactly. They're having like an orgy in the middle of like where the old people are hanging out and stuff. <laughs> it's just, oh, what a weird, what a weird movie. <laughs> uh, yes, I would say that that's fair. Um, Brian, you touched on something a second ago that I don't want to blow past. When we were talking about kind of like when he absorbs the knowledge of the Eternals, when Zed does, how that unfolds. I remember it was like I got up to make a cup of coffee as that was happening. When I sat back down, it was um, all these like naked people with uh, arts and culture projected onto them. Uh, well, yeah. classical music plays in the background and extracts from literature are read aloud. And I was like, I... I'm going to have to rewind. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. That's where May, and I think like there's another woman who was supposed to have a media role in the script, but that didn't. It's the woman who like 
things that Siren saw. Apparently, mm. she's like an important person, too, but you wouldn't know in the movie, you know. Uh, I, I didn't feel like she was as important as May or Consuelo yeah. was. Is no, this the, um, the woman that yeah, gives she, him the, the... She gives him a leaf at one point and tells him to eat it when things go bad. Yes. Like, what is that? And I don't think he does. Oh, no, he does eat it. He does eat it at some point. I, I forget if, uh, yes, the... Uh, uh, you know, it's the Chekhov's leaf. If you give a person a leaf, they have to eat it by the third act. Um, um, but but I, I forget if he eats that before he, like, penetrates that bubble. Because I think, like, they get him in one of those, like, big bubble sheets. And like he punches through it. Yeah, and they're, and they're all stunned that he's got the, the power to bust through that cellophane. Yeah, they really emphasize the importance of that. And I was like, why is it important? I don't know. <laughs> but I guess because it's supposed to be an impenetrable material and that adds to his being a Superman. He also now has powers. Like he was making people like go in reverse. That's when right. they were smashing up all the sculptures and stuff. Yeah, it's, uh, it's unfortunate that I've watched it twice a couple of days ago and I still don't understand this movie. He does too much. There's just too much in it. You know, it's it's. it's I'm, I must admit, I mean, like I hear what you're saying, but it's very vindicating for me because, like, I, I, I watched it today, and um, and like we'll get to it. I think, like, because as we're, as we're talking about it, I'm kind of starting to recognize the elements of it that are fun. But because I was like, I need to get my thoughts together to talk about this for an hour, two, an hour and a half, and I was like so determined to deconstruct every last thing about it to make sure that I understood it, which I am quite happy to admit and hold my hands up and say that I don't. Uh, I think that like it's only now, kind of like in hindsight that I'm kind of spotting the things about it that I would probably have more fun with on a second watch. I don't think there's a person in this conversation who could honestly hold their hands up and say that they know what the fuck's going on in Zard does. Yeah, I mean, I've been watching the film for the past, like, eight, nine years, and I still don't understand it. I'm trying to. It's so frustrating. You want to understand it. And I almost wonder if it would be beneficial to have it be remade as a miniseries on Amazon Prime or something where uh, people can elaborate on the thoughts a little more and it becomes a little more cohesive, you know. I, I, I feel it would benefit from being like a six, one-hour episode thing where the ideas are more fully fleshed out and some of the characters are more fully fleshed out because it, there, uh, there's probably a lot of interesting things to say. But, you know, the other thing is it's the product of the 70s, so they might need to, like, think about the concepts in it and refresh it for uh, this modern age. Yeah, I think that you're probably onto something there because it does feel like there's a lot of kind of untold or at least half-told or quarter-told stories in this. Mm. Yeah. But I think that we should try and kind of pull this towards how this turns out, if we can. Yeah. Because we get to a situation here where Zed holds the tabernacle in his hand, the tabernacle being kind of like the kind of all-seeing eye in the situation, right? Now, was he given this by Arthur Frayne in that kind of museum of all things historical? Yeah, he... uh... There's like a crystal ball that that Arthur Frayne like goofily like has float between his hands, which is totally on, on a string. When he's but then there's like, like a, a smaller, yeah. There's like a smaller crystal, and I think that's the tabernacle. And he has to once again quote penetrate the the tabernacle. And I guess he eventually goes inside and there's this whole ridiculous scene with like mirrors and reflections. And uh, I I love watching it with the commentary because he, Borman himself admits that the scene is too long and that you can fast forward if you want, he says. Yeah, I mean, that bit very much has the feel of like an improvised interpretive dance segment like at a drama school. Yes, I wrote that too. It feels like an insufferable art film during (laughs) this where, uh, where there's May and Consuela doing like Vogue poses. It's ridiculous. 
yeah, I was like, this could, yeah, this could be scaled back a little bit. Like, I didn't quite understand, like, why they're, like, doing the poses with their hands as they're, like, twirling in front of the camera, you know? I almost feel like it would have been fine if they just had floating heads, you know? That would have been, I would have been okay with that, you know? Because that would go with the motif of floating heads mm-hmm. in the movie, mm-hmm. but didn't need the uh, superstar hands flashing across your face. <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> the destruction of the tabernacle seems to kind of reopen the door or floodgates for regular human death, right? Yeah, and uh, Zed at this point is resuscitated by Consuela's kiss. Yeah, I guess she's the chosen mate for Zed to bring about a new species, and I guess the Eternals' time is over. Oh, also, there's a very important plot point that I forget about, is that the original scientists who created this world are renegades, like they're senile old people. Mm. And I guess the young people like put them in that position of growing really old and being senile. But the original people responsible for this like society are renegades. And they one of them dies like naturally, yeah. I guess. Yeah. And this sort of brings about, you know, they all agree that Zed is there to, to kill them all. But he grows. I guess. Yeah. Unfortunately, a lot of what I say ends with, I, I guess. guess. He grows as a person. He's like, I don't want to exterminate anymore, basically, is what he says, you know, because he's going to shoot the woman, the siren. And then uh, he lowers his gun, but then she's shot, and it turns out, like, oh, his friends, his other exterminator buddies have, like, you know, made it into the vortex and are now there to kill everybody. They're going forward with the mission of killing them. And it's like a weird, it's like a, I don't feel satisfied at the end instead I'm just watching a bunch of like old senile people be shot and I was like what (laughs) I'm not getting much enjoyment out of this Um, you know It is like it's obviously because yeah, kind of the kind of periphery shields around the vortexes aren't there anymore. The exterminators come storming in and start killing everybody, and everyone's delighted about it. And I remember sitting watching it, being like, "I was like, it was like, it's this almost feels like it's being framed as like a happy ending for a lot of people, and it's not one for me." It's uh, yeah, exactly. I don't feel I don't feel happy watching this movie because again, it, I don't take pleasure out of like people being shot and stabbed with swords, you know? No. Especially, like, the old people. Like, I'm like, it's just sadistic. Yeah, and like um, but yeah, like a, a bunch of these guys are mowed down mm. at the end of this, and and like I said, everyone's fine with it. So presumably, we're just expected to be fine with it too. Yeah, I also yeah. feel like there's a moment when um, just before like Frain and Friend die, where I think it's Frain says it was all a joke. Oh yeah, Friend, Friend actually says it. Friend. Oh yeah, that's another thing. You shouldn't have a guy named Friend and a guy named Frain. Nope. No, nope. That's just that's just screenwriting 101. Could have called him anything in the world. Exactly. But I feel like that line, I, I don't know, it feels like it's speaking directly to the audience at this point, which is essentially, it, like, we're pretty much right at the end of the film. Yeah, and that's like, I don't, I'm not a fan of that kind of thing, you know, especially when you're trying to make something serious. It seems like he's doing something serious, and then you say something like it was all a joke, and maybe, but maybe that's friends, you know, ideology of the whole situation of this life that they've been leading and how it ends so violently and abruptly and stupidly that it you know maybe uh friends was like only a few steps away from becoming like an apathetic you know yeah. just he would just be a very cynical per- i think he's a cynical character yeah. friend and, and yeah. i feel I, I don't know i feel like that's you kind of maybe reading a lot into that but i feel like if that line had been delivered by frayne it would have made more sense for him to say that this was all his big joke or his big experiment but 
to me it just has much more of a, a wink to it that made me feel like this was all John Berman doing a project because he didn't get to make The Lord of the Rings, which was supposed to happen. <laughs> yes, yes. God, imagine that movie in his hand. We can talk about that after we wrap up uh, Zardoz. But, you know, another sort of ingredient to a uh, quote-unquote pretentious type of film is always include Beethoven's Seventh Symphony Movement Two. You know, it always seems to show up in, uh, you know, very arty things or things that want to be arty. So the movie ends with that orchestral version of that song and thus begins what I feel is the most aggravating, stupid ending ever for a film, which is just the uh, cross dissolves of Zed and Consuela in the giant head. Yeah. Uh, I do like that idea that they escape and they find like solitude in the crushed, uh, abandoned head of Zardoz. But it's just stupid. Like, where did they get the green robe? Yeah, yeah. Those like those have never been in the film at all. Like, is that just like we made these new clothes and this is how we'll be? It's it is interesting that they're you know, I just thought of this now, like the fact that the clothes, the robes are so like heavy and cover everything versus like the hippie. Yeah. clothes which are like velvety and sparse you know on the skin as if they've found um, shame again yeah maybe it could be yeah like adam and eve found shame but you know the old makeup is eh, it's fine but then like when it dissolves to their skeletons <laughs> and they still have beards and long hair i was like this is so stupid uh-huh that was um because like when that sequence started i was like oh i see what they're doing and that was the same as you i was like i was like oh yeah like this aging makeup is pretty cool and then there was like one before the skeletons but i was like that's a silly one mm. yep yep and then, exactly. and then it transitions again it's skeletons and it's like oh i see Right. There, there was mind. a point in the trans- transition where it just looked like Sean Connery and Charlotte Rampling maybe 10 years ago. And I thought, that's quite good because that, that's kind of what they looked like. And then it was like, no, no, it's gone. That, you've taken that step too far now. Like there's a bit of a Klingon vibe to Sean Connery in the last one. <laughs> right, I agree. I think that it's like a maddening way to end the film. It just makes me mad at how serious he's taking it and how silly it looks, especially the skeletons at the end. And then the skeletons are gone, and then you have the handprints on the cave. So I guess it's to imply early cave drawings, and I guess like a new people have been born. It's um, it's uh, it's John Berman's handprint, isn't it? At the end, I, it is. Yes, and John Berman is one of the brutals that was killed by Sean Connery. Uh, I think it's when they're farming. Like, he's the guy who, like, falls down and Sean Connery just shoots him in the face. Um, I read this because he got shot with a blank and he was fine, but also, like, um, uh, a piece of wadding got uh, embedded in his forehead and took several days to come out, apparently. Oh, my God. Yeah. But with that, we're done on Zardoz. Andy, your take this time around. This is a silly film. Like, it it yeah. has massive pretension and ideas well above its station. Like, and that's to be applauded, actually, as the amount of invention and kind of creativity that the film has. But it just, like, like you said, Brian, short of doing a four-hour cut of this, you can't coherently display all of that stuff. And this is an hour and 40 minutes, so it's not even long. It's not even that long. And it yeah. just can't get close to simplifying or adequately explaining everything in a way that makes the film anything more than a, a kind of maddening curiosity at times which is also often very funny which it's not really intended to be yeah he has a lot of interesting things to say and i can't fault an original film because it is completely oh. original you know it's funny like everybody goes gaga for remakes and this and that i almost i wish they would remake bad 
films or films that were not fleshed out enough or received well when they first came out because there's a there's an opportunity to improve it yeah you know in a remake and this and logan's run you know i find those films so frustrating because like they have such potential to be great but they sort of fall short in their campiness or they're trying to cram too much into it but, you know, I, I feel both of those films could benefit from, like, really great remakes, like, ideally in the hands of people who love the source material yeah. and want to expand on it. I want a Dennis Villeneuve Zardoz. Oh, no, no. <laughs> no, you're talking. That's what I want. Um, That'd be something. <laughs> I am not about to criticize a film for having too many ideas. Or at least I'm not going to criticize it too harshly for that. Um, and I think that this is overstuffed with, like, there is just so much movie in here. Yeah. And I think that it's a shame that it doesn't get to flesh out certain things and potentially over fleshes out other things. And I think that the problem for me was, and I said, I watched this kind of like just ahead of this and I was so determined to try and understand it that I think I almost didn't stop to have fun with it. I was kind of like, oh, fuck, what does this mean? What does yeah. this mean? Who's this guy? Kind of thing. And I think that like um, it's a little bit vindicating to talk to both of you who have much longer histories with this film than me. So that you kind of like you hit the same roadblocks as I do, even years after seeing it for the first time. And I think that even as we're talking about it, I was starting to see things a little more for what they were or how they should kind of be enjoyed. And I think that what I would say about this, Brian, is without saying that it necessarily won me over, I came into this assuming I would never watch it again, and I'm coming out the other side saying I almost certainly will. That's good. That's good. I think it'll, it's a movie that'll keep you coming back. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to try and put the puzzle together. Yeah, yeah. I, I could see myself revisiting it. And like I say, like I, I, I was pretty far off uh, that as an outcome when we mm -hmm. sat down to do this today. So that's pretty cool. I would actually say that it rewards repeated viewings because particularly in a kind of time-sensitive, note-taking way like you were doing presumably when you were watching it this time, Mitch. I think to, to watch it completely free of that stuff and at your own pace, it is more rewarding. You do pick up on more, more stuff than you maybe do on the surface. Yeah, I I, th I think it would it would probably benefit from a from a dive back in, but it's a great pick, and we've finally done it. We've finally done Zardos as well, which is nice. Yeah, like a lot of people are going to be happy. Brian, before we finish up, I uh, want to talk a little bit about uh, what's been going on with you and some pretty cool stuff, really. Uh, the yeah. Brian Lenano collection has just landed on the Arrow Player, so um, do you want to talk a little bit about that, and we just talk about the films that are in there in turn? Yeah. So uh, Arrow has graciously invited me to uh, have some of my short films be part of their streaming service. And uh, they asked me what I wanted to uh, include, and I just figured I would give them the most recent work. But I do have a backlog of, yeah. of work that dates back as far as 2005, 2006. But uh, I basically I gave them Prohan, William, BFF Girls, William's Tips for Turning Tricks into Treats, and The Devil's Asshole. <laughs> so those are all now part of the Arrow collection. And they most recently invited me to make selections of recommendations for films that are on the channel. And uh, that was really exciting. So it's, it's nice. It, it gives me a good feeling of like validation that uh, people are seeing what I'm doing and are fans of my work, even though <laughs> like Zardoz, it could be very silly. Yeah. But uh, just to go back to Borman really quickly, what I love about him is that he also knows that like Zardoz is a lot to handle. And he like, I pulled some quotes from his like commentary saying, I'm astonished at my hubris. So it's nice <laughs> that he like, looks, he, <laughs> that he looks back at, at his work and is like, yeah, I probably went a little too far in some places. That's you know, so it, that, that's very nice to hear, you know, it's yeah. cathartic. And I do, I actually, I think about Zardoz a lot when I make a film because I recognize how successful he was with Deliverance. 
and how your follow-up film could really hurt you if it's like insane, you know? <laughs> so in the in the years between making Crohan and William, I definitely had Zardoz on my mind. I was like, well, Crohan was a success. So if William becomes my Zardoz, then like, okay, I guess that might set me back a little bit. But then it wasn't. William was just as successful. Yeah. And uh, so then again, I was like, okay, I have to think about Zardoz and maybe I'm doing too much. And maybe I feel like BFF Girls was a little like Zardoz where I was trying to explore a lot of different ideas with the movie and maybe it didn't quite land with, with some people. It certainly wasn't as widely received by festivals and whatnot. I think a lot of people misunderstood the intention of the film, <laughs> but I'm quite proud of BFF Girls. But yeah, I, I think like Zardoz, there may be a lot of ideas in there that yeah. maybe people didn't quite grasp. Yeah, I've been a big fan of your stuff for a long time, Brian. I think uh, the first exposure I think I had to your stuff was when we were kind of playing at festivals at the same time with various shorts. And uh, the first thing I saw was Crowhand. And it was just like one of those kind of breath of fresh air things. Like um, Invaders, Mitch, you know, remember that, that short? The, the one of- Invaders is a great yeah. film. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's the, those real short, punchy, hilarious things that was total opposite of the stuff I'm making. Like, it's just, um, my stuff's just depressing and horrible. Um, so it, it was really great to see people doing these amazing, really short, punchy things. And then it was, I, I think it was Gwilliam that absolutely, like, just, I was like, right, this guy's a fucking genius. I'm a mad, a uh, mad genius. Uh, thank you. I, I appreciate that very much. Uh, Crowhand was a lot of fun, and I, I know full well that it's, like, a very stupid movie, <laughs> but that was, like, the whole reason why I wanted to make it was it was a stupid idea that I had, and I just wanted to do a why not kind of movie you know like why not make a film that is like this you know it would <laughs> yeah. be fun and thankfully a lot of people agreed you know and thought it was a fun movie that's i feel like that film gave me traction and some clout to do the next project which was william i guess mm-hmm. and william was an idea we had for a number of years but we didn't act on it because i guess i was afraid to because of what it's about and <laughs> what happens in it and I wasn't exactly I wasn't exactly making those kinds of films at that time I was trying to make a name for myself doing like horror science fiction kind of stuff I have a couple of films uh, called Attackazoids and Attackazoids Boy and those have like sort of science fiction allegorical themes to them so it was around that time like where we thought of William but I was like no I, we can't do this it's too like dirty or it's too pervy or whatever so but then after we did Crohan and people seemed to enjoy what we did I was like well we've had this idea for a while why don't we try it why don't we give it a shot and I really expected for people to be really upset by it and sure enough <laughs> there were people upset by it but there was more people who were like really into it so I don't know what that says about our society but um <laughs> um I can hand to God say that I have never seen a short tear up a room like when I saw William at Celluloid Screams. I can't even remember what feature it ran with. And I don't imagine many people that saw it will either. Because I remember for one thing, like it absolutely killed in the room in the moment. But um, afterwards, everyone was out in the bar kind of quoting it to each other and stuff like that. And it was like, it really like it really was something else seeing that. Also, um, Crowhand is kind of wired into the DNA of this podcast in a strange way. Years ago, before I moved to Glasgow, Andy put an event on um, and screened Crowhand yeah. along with a bunch of other stuff when uh, when Andy screened Remnant and I came down for that and it was actually the night that me and Andy met and became friends and three years later we started doing this yeah there you go that's awesome I'm glad Crowhand helped bring you guys together oh, yeah. I mean look at the power look beautiful. at the power of Phil beautiful do you suppose we've seen the last of William I'm not sure maybe uh, funny because like I'm very protective of him <laughs> and you know we did William's tip and that was 
fun, but, you know, I don't know if I want to keep making William films. I don't want to keep, like, trotting him out, basically, uh, because he might lose his luster, too. You know, maybe I want him to retire with dignity. But, uh, you know, it's definitely come across my mind. I've had ideas where it's like, well, could I do this as a feature or... Should I make a Christmas special with him? I'm not sure. So I'm not completely ruling it out, but I do have other ideas that I would rather be exploring than, yeah, than sure. doing yeah, more William course, stuff. But, you know, it is really something. It's truly special, and I'm grateful that people have connected with the film so much and that it is quoted, that someone incorporated it into their wedding vows. What? You know, like, I know, it's insane. <laughs> like, the amount that William has, like, to uh, use a word that Foreman was using a lot in Zardoz to penetrate into the psyche of uh, of people's minds, uh, you know, it's, it's really special. I, I'm definitely uh, grateful yeah. for it. That seems um, like uh, something that William would quite like, actually, as well. He would, yeah. yeah. Um, he, he likes the ascension. Yeah, and uh, what, <laughs> that kind of brings us on to the discussion of... Uh, What's next? What are you working on now? So I have a few projects in the works. I have a short called Buttermilk that I wrote with my wife, Tori. The name Buttermilk already, and knowing it's coming from me, and may already evoke uh -huh. a visceral reaction from people. I don't want to give it too much away, but I want to say that at the heart of the movie, the film is about boundaries. It's about responsibility. Boundaries and responsibility is cool. what that film is about. I can hear you smiling, Brian, while you're saying that. I... So. <laughs> <laughs> and I have another idea that has been in my head for years called Boogers, which is about a guy who knows is haunted and he needs an ear, nose, and throat exorcist to Amazing. help exercise. <laughs> So I have that as an idea, and I have a couple of other ideas that aren't quite solidified just yet, but those are the two definite ones. I have another script written, but I'm sort of waiting to find out if someone is going to finance that. Okay. Um, but I'm excited about that one, too. But yeah, it's been it's been busy, you know. Just to talk about the other two films, BFF Girls and The Devil's Asshole. I'll talk about The Devil's Asshole first. The Devil's sure. Asshole was made for my friend Blake's. Uh, film festival, which I believe you won the WTF award for. Yeah, uh, for Split. Split. Yeah, yeah, I've got that 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 things up in my wall just now. Very cool. Yeah. Um, so he has a timed film competition, kind of like a forty-eight hour film challenge. Um, do you guys have that in Scotland? We have similar things, yeah, for sure. Cool. So he did a, a time competition called the Cinema Challenge where you get to make a film in 13 days and you have to draw a horror subgenre out of a hat and a, a card against humanity subject card. You guys, Are you guys familiar with that <laughs> yeah. game? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, so we signed up to do a film um, he couldn't help on it, obviously, because uh, he's like running the festival. So my friend Nick Morgan helped me with that film. And we drew Demon Devil Hell as our horror subgenre. And then we drew the LGBT community as our subject card. So we had to come up with a script that incorporated both. And I wanted to make sure we weren't doing something that would be seen as offensive for the yeah. wrong reason. That's kind of my mantra is like, be offensive, but be offensive for the right reason, not for the wrong reason. So uh, we decided to make a like a chili cook-off for an LGBT community and then accidentally summons a demon by using spice that came from hell yeah. in her chili. And that's uh, conjuring this, yes, exactly, a very silly movie. And, and of course, you know, spicy chili can really uh, hurt on the way out, yeah. you know. It hurts going in and it hurts going out. So we had the demon have a real anal fixation and <laughs> he, has to, he has to come to terms with why does he have such an anal fixation. 
And uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. And we did it in 13 days. And, you know, it was runner up in the competition. But then, like, it actually got to play at a bunch of festivals, too, including Motel X. And Joe Bob Briggs had a drive-in event last October, and I got to play at the Rose Bowl, which is a big venue. Yeah. No way, um, that's in, amazing. Uh, in LA, yeah. So it's just funny, just these little like merit badges I get because my weird filmmaking career is like, yeah, that was asshole got to play at the Rose Bowl, and <laughs> a William Barf bag is in the Virtual Barf Bag Museum online. You know, just weird little things that happen. And, and then, uh, and BFF Girls, I feel like was my most ambitious and most technical film, and had a lot of ideas in it. Um, and that's the one I, I would have loved to have elaborated more on with like more episodes or, you know, more short films and adventures of the girls. Cause I really did like those characters. And I think we could have explored a lot of interesting topics and ideas about growing up and going through, uh, your teens into your adulthood and, and, uh, the idea, the satire of taboos. Cause I think that's what sort of like made people a little off put by BFF girls was it dealt with like period, yeah. but I was trying to explain that they're a normal, natural thing and that they shouldn't be. But I was also trying to be empathetic to pain that one would experience having a period. So that's why like it was so graphic the way it was. But I was also exploring like the idea of like the fetishization of Japanese culture or Japanese girls or young girls in anime being fetishized by older male audiences. You know, I was trying to explore a lot, maybe a little too much like Zardoz and it didn't quite, was quite your, land. Was this your but, Berman moment? Yes, it was. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the one thing I never really talked about in like explaining the, the movie was um, I always loved like the show Power Rangers uh -huh. because it was half American shot and half Japanese. Yeah. So, you know, obviously when they become Power Rangers, they turn it's the Japanese footage. Yeah. So Mitch only I just found I, out about this the other day. Yeah, this is oh, relatively really? new information to me, yeah. Ah, uh, so I, I had seen, like, original Power Rangers footage, like, at a Star Trek convention once. I was like, oh, this doesn't look like the American show. And then I realized, like, oh, they're taking, they're editing the Japanese footage into the American show. So I thought about, like, an executive, like, trying to make a, a show like Power Rangers, and they have this footage of these Japanese actresses, like, performing. But, you know, for the American audience, they just cast American people, and then their powers are they transform into Japanese girls. But it's also, like, making fun of, like, or, poke, you know, poking at uh, people who are, like, so obsessed with Japanese culture and that they want to become Japanese and stuff like that, or they act a certain way. So I, it was satirical. But I think uh, satire is a touchy place to go sometimes because you don't know if people are getting what you're trying to do yeah. with it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so those five films are all available now, which is cool. And it's amazing, actually, when you think about it, having just kind of talked about the, the five films, it's amazing that these five films are available on a platform like Arrow and it's just massively inspiring to click on the Arrow player every day and see The Devil's Asshole come up as one of the first recommendations. It's unbelievable. It's bizarre and delightful <laughs> that it's like right next to some of the best cult and genre cinema that the world has to offer and then my stupid films are right next to it. So <laughs> it means a lot to me. It's superb, man. It's amazing. Brian, thanks so much for taking so much time at such an obscene hour of the morning to do this <laughs> with us today. Um, really appreciate it. And thank you for uh, bringing Zardoz into my life. I think a couple of people have threatened to do it. So um, uh, so thanks for following Drew. Where can people come up with you on uh, social media? So I'm on Twitter. You can find me at Brian Lenano. And I'm also, I have a website, brianlenano.com. So you can see all of my work before Crohan is up online. You can watch it there. But if you want to watch my new stuff, it's also available on the Arrow channel. Yeah. Brian, thanks, thanks so much. Thanks for having me.
Oh, of course, it's my pleasure. Praise be the Zardoz. <laughs> Indeed, <laughs> yes, absolutely. So I don't know if I understand Zardoz any better, but I think I like it more now. Yeah, I still don't understand it almost at all, but yeah, I have a relatively good time with it, and I don't think it was ever intended to be as funny as it is, but it is frequently very funny. Absolutely, um, and great chat as well. Big thank you to Brian Lenano for joining us to talk Zardoz. All the films that he talked about are great um, of his own. The Brian Lenano collection is available on the Arrow Player right now. As is the Brian Pick selection thing that's on Arrow Player as well now. Yeah, yeah, so go check those things out. However, for the moment, we are once again done. Yeah. So I was going to say that we're back on Monday, which we are, with another mini-sode. Before that, though, don't forget this Saturday, so tomorrow night, if you're listening on release day, we are live at the Soho Home Horror Festival uh, with Matt Mercer. Yes, yeah. We're talking The Howling 3, The Marsupials. <laughs> uh, which I think is going to be a great time. Also, we are playing alongside, if you like, Browse and Dementia Part 2 and a whole bunch of great shorts as well. So join us for that if you can. That's from 5pm on Saturday. However, our event's at 9. Yes, that's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, uh, if that's not your thing, and I don't understand why it wouldn't be, um, we are back in your feeds on Monday with another mini-sode. We'll be talking about open watching. Nature will continue to go wild. We will take a look at your feedback, play Mitch's pitches, let you know everything you need to know about this coming week's episode, which, if you've been paying attention to the schedule, you might be able to make an educated guess at. <laughs> However, if you want to get in touch with us between now and then, loads of ways you can do that. Facebook and Instagram are Strong Language Violent Scenes. You can tweet us at StrongViolentPC, email StrongLanguageViolentScenes at gmail.com, and join the conversation at our flourishing Facebook group, The Chud Locker. Yeah, of course. And check out our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash StrongLanguageViolentScenes. We dropped a couple of things this week and we will be looking to get back on track and release more regularly rather than doing a kind of bi-weekly dump. Yeah, the catch-up thing. I think yeah, we're going to try and stick to a little bit more rigorous of a schedule going forward. But hope you guys have been enjoying the stuff that's out there. And it's patreon.com slash stronglanguageviolentscenes if you want to go take a look and see if there's anything there that tickles your fancy. Yeah. However, we're back Saturday with a live show at the Soho Horror Festival. Failing that, we're back Monday. Join us then if you can. In the meantime, don't forget, it's better to die a hero than live as food in a world of chuds. Goodbye. Goodbye. You've been listening to Strong Language and Violent Scenes with Andy Stewart and Mitch Bain. Strong Language and Violent Scenes theme by Mitch Bain. Production and artwork by Andy Stewart. Find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts and Podbean. <laughs>